this is Laren Baker and welcome to the Kitchen Confidant Podcast. Today we're chatting with Nancy Singleton Hachisu. Nancy is a California native and Stanford alumnus who moved to Japan in 1988 to live with her husband, a Japanese farmer in rural Saitama Prefecture. A James Beard award-winning food writer, Nancy is the author of four cookbooks and frequently appears in Japanese print and television media. You may have seen her on Netflix's Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Nancy's latest book, Japan the Vegetarian Cookbook, is a follow-up to the global bestseller Japan the Cookbook and showcases the beauty of Japanese vegetarian dishes. I'm excited to welcome Nancy to the podcast. Hello. Thank you, Liren. Hi. Nice to see you, Liren. Nice to see you. I I love your background. Your kitchen is so charming. I cannot wait to hear more about your life there. But first, I always start by asking, what's the first thing you ever cooked and how old were you? Oh, I was 10 um, when I started cooking. And I think it was, I don't know if it was the first thing, but bread was um, what I first sort of put my efforts into because we didn't have any cool ingredients. We had the, you know, the Betty Crocker for kids cookbook, but we had no cool chocolates and things like that for making cookies. And so my mother didn't believe in snacks for the kids and she shopped at the co-op. So we had Mm. flour and we had yeast and we had water and so um, butter. So um, I made bread and then Ah. I just sort of went on to making dinner occasionally for the, for the family. And then when my mother went to graduate school, I started cooking dinner every night. Um, my parents had been divorced uh, when I was like 14 or so. So I couldn't stand the idea of what's for dinner, soup and sandwiches or stofers. So, oh, I shouldn't say that. Or frozen dinner. <laughs> <laughs> so I started started cooking. So, well, yeah. you started cooking out of necessity, but clearly I think that's your best education when you start that young. Well, you know, food is just the whole focus of my life, I guess, you know, it's what I always remember and, and think about. And so food, reading and languages. Food, reading languages. I couldn't agree with that more. I, my, my daughter and I love languages. I wish I was fluent in <clears throat> Japanese. Well, I don't speak any Japanese, but I wish I could had the time to learn. And but let's back up. Could you tell everyone a bit yeah. about yourself and how you made your way from your childhood in California to life in Japan? Well, I um, I went to Stanford and then I was working in the restaurant business after school for in San Francisco for you know my eight years and I just felt like I really needed to get a life and I was very obsessed with sushi and about the experience of, of sitting at the the sushi bar and then talking to the master and he was my you know we had become friends and so and I thought well I'm gonna go I decided to go to graduate school and I thought I get a JD and then. Well, another language made sense because you're going to graduate school. And so Japanese was the next language. And so I went to Japan for a year. So I thought, realized that a year is just not enough. It wasn't, I was an exchange student in Belgium for a year and learned French because I was living with a French uh, Francophone family. Mm-hmm. So I realized about six months in that I couldn't be applying to graduate school because I wasn't ready. And then I also, in the meantime, had met the farmer boy who became my husband. And so I stayed and then I stayed and then I stayed. And now I've been here for uh, 35 years this summer. Um, And uh, the the funny thing is I didn't actually think about the fact that the house I grew up in was actually until I came to Japan and saw the architecture and the, the 
not just like the traditional style, but the um, modern style of architecture. It, our house we grew up in was actually um, Japanese style house. Oh, no um, kidding. Yeah. Well, you know, Eichler in Palo Alto was influenced mm -hmm. by Japanese architecture. And mm -hmm. so was the architect that my mother used for our house. So we had wrap around glass doors around the house and windows and then the, an inside uh, garden, which is called Nakaniwa, inside garden um, mm -hmm. in Japan. So, and no paint, no, I mean, oiled redwood walls and cork floors. That's more modern, but um, so the aesthetic and then Danish modern furniture. So was, the whole aesthetic was not traditional, but it was um, a very Japanese aesthetic. Um, so was, I guess I internalized it, you know. Yeah. So I guess there was a bit of that familiarity for you where you probably just felt so at home. <laughs> yeah. Also, you know, growing up in a family of six kids and it was, you know, the sixties and it was very kind of wild time. Um, I also came to Japan looking for a little bit of calm and uh, that I also found. And, and I write about it in this book that mm -hmm. um, it's, I, I, I do not practice Zen Buddhism and I, I did try because I thought it was such an amazing ideal, but you know, I did the Zazen at the um, Zen temple outside but I knew I felt like it was fake in some way. And so, and I, I did, I, one of the first cookbooks I bought was a, um, a Shojin Rodi cookbook, a temple food cooking. And mm. I write about in one of my books about the washing of the rice. And um, the thing is, though, as I wrote this book, I, you know, delved into, and it's been a many year project, actually. I've been wanting to write this book for. I don't know, a, a long time, you know, sort mm -hmm. of in the beginning of me writing books, this was always a book I wanted to write. But the thing I realized is that in, in delving into the precepts of Buddhist, of the approach to Zen Buddhist, to temple food or to um, Zen Buddhist cooking was that mm -hmm. I practiced those precepts, like those, those ideals about how to approach the food, but that was just how I cooked anyway. And so mm -hmm. it's not a, it's not, um, I mean, I grew up in a non-religious family, but uh, we all find our religion in a different way, I think. And so for me, I guess cooking is how I make sense of life. Yeah, I loved how you talked about that sense of spirituality with vegetables. And mm -hmm. I'd love to know like, how you achieve this connection on a day-to-day -day basis when you're handling your ingredients. Well, you know, it started because, and I write about it in my first book, Japanese Farm Food, my husband's a farmer, not me. I mean, I did do work on the field. Um, just I tried so hard to do it. And then when I started writing books, it was like it just went by the wayside. But when you go to the, when you go to the field and when you're weeding or when you're touching the vegetables and your or the leaves and you're and you're you're getting you get energy from them. And so when I, I used to um, have friends over um, for Thanksgiving and Christmas and then in the summer. And so I would pick all the vegetables and um, that and by touching them you get the feeling of what how they want to be treated and mm -hmm. so it's through that energy that they give you that yeah. you know it's like you know talking to the vegetables you know it sounds a little bit freaky deaky but it's you get <laughs> the energy from the vegetables and then you help them along it's just to be what they they best should be rather than um, 
you know, going to the supermarket with your list, which is what I used to do. Not, I mean, I would order the vegetables for my cooking classes, things like that. And my husband would say, well, it's not in season, right? Green beans aren't in season right now. And I'd say, oh, but but they are, they are in Kyushu, which is in the (laughs) South, you know. (laughs) It took me a long time. It took me many years, you know, um, 10 years, maybe, I don't know, until it was, okay, five, six, seven, eight years. But as you do it every day, it becomes part of you, you know, Mm -hmm. so... Yeah, and I do think that that's something that so many of us who, let's say, live in suburbia or who don't, you know, grow our own vegetables that we don't experience on a day-to-day basis. And it's so easy to lose touch of what the vegetable is asking you to do. And maybe that's probably why so many people find cooking difficult. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. So, but, you know, if you think about it, though, you're so lucky in the Bay Area with all the farm, or even in America, all the farmer's markets, because, yeah. I mean... We don't have that here like you have in, the, in, in America, especially in the Bay Area, where you have mm-hmm. farmers markets almost every day. And so for sure, there's the farmers that, you know, might not be growing their own stuff. You have to vet who is the actual farmer, mm-hmm. you know, they're mi- mixed in. But you, if you buy from the same farm farms every week, then you come to know, well, this is in season and then you're going to buy it when it's in season. And so then you become much more in touch. You don't have to have a field to cook like th- this way. Plus it's cheaper. Plus yeah. you have less choice. And so if you go to the supermarket, there's everything's there. Plus it's not as good. Yeah. It'll taste I mean, better. That's the hard thing about recipe testing is that you have to buy things out of season to test the recipes, but it is yes. a little bit soul sucking, frankly. You know, I did yes. the recipe testing with my son, Andrew. Yeah. But it's really easy to cook from seasonal vegetables because they're cheaper. There's less of them and they're better tasting. Yeah. Well, we have to talk yeah, about seasonality. You've mentioned that in Japan, <clears throat> there are 72 micro seasons so well, yeah, that's really more. That, that's not really food, food oriented. The micro seasons okay. are more for poems or mm. minute changes in nature. So you can't like it, a lot of people. One of the ideas um, along the way, somebody said, "Oh, you should maybe separate it into micro seasons." Like this is just <laughs> not a thing, you know. And and in fact, you know, sadly, if. You go, most Japanese buy from the supermarket. And so they are less understanding of what the seasons are now. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the goal is to um, follow seasonality. And I think seasonality is revered in Japan while not necessarily practiced. It is definitely part of their whole, cu- part of the whole culture here. So the mm-hmm. idea of seasonality is absolutely revered and appreciated, but on a daily basis, not necessarily followed. Mm, um, interesting. Because it's more of a cultural appreciation that's really deeply seated in Buddhism and in Shintoism, uh, the, the two um, religions of Japan, uh, religions or practices, maybe mm-hmm. practices more. So it's definitely part of life, but um, the supermarket has kind of put a kibosh on the understanding of seasonality for a lot of people as they get, you know, not the grandmas maybe, but maybe some of the grandmas now, (laughs) you know, because people, you know. 
Yeah, there's that convenience. Well, I'm just curious what what you're growing now on your farm there. What's what's in season there? So again, I should uh, explain that. Um, well, farm. There's mm-hmm. fields here and there, but actually nowadays my husband's only um, working on one smaller, semi-smallish farm uh, piece of land. Um, mm-hmm. It's not even the, as big as this house, but, um, and we're in between, you know, it's the end of winter and, and, and he's has never sold his vegetables, by the way. So oh, that's okay. Far, it's not that kind of a farm. Farm means uh, you're a farmer because you have an agrarian job. So he had a free range egg farm, but he hasn't um, had that for since 2015 when we had big snows and they smashed the chicken coops, but he does actually grow soybeans and wheat for the um, local soy sauce company, um, Yamaki Jozo, whose soy sauce you can buy from the Japanese pantry or Osawa repackages it as Nama Shoyu and you can find it around at some of the organic shops. Anyway, Mm. so he does now sell soybeans and that's not food that we eat. So he has, he had, two main fields that he used to work on and I used to help when I could, but I have three children. Uh, plus I have a, I had a little English school and then, uh, but when I started writing books, I couldn't do it anymore, but he, at this point in the field, um, nothing. I can see he's growing some onions, but they're not yet. That's a spring thing. Mm-hmm. I think he potato, he's planted potatoes and uh, I see that my son planted some, some peas over at the farmhouse um and yeah it's he's recently plowed the field so, oh he left some negi that's um a japanese um leek slash scallion uh, mm. but um at the farm stand my friends one town over we each little town has a farm stand with some local vegetables mostly they're all sprayed but um the one town over has our friends uh, vegetables and they do not, they're organic. Um, and they have spinach, uh, uh, turnips, cabbage. It's a kind of low time. Yeah. Uh, and my friends don't, don't mostly grow things like the fancy things like asparagus and peas and things like that. They are actually selling their vegetables. And so they're, they're looking for vegetables that will, uh, will, that will have more productivity. Yes, that makes complete sense. It is still only March. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to touch upon tempura because you mentioned in your book that there are tempura restaurants where you can enjoy an entire meal of tempura, which sounds wonderful. Um, so what to you is critical in preparing a good tempura dish? Well, you know, I would really hate to say that I'm not an expert in tempura. I, I can mm-hmm. make you know, some on a small base, small basis, I can make very good tempura because I don't cook up a huge tempura feast. Um, I did recently go to Kondo, uh, tempura Kondo in Tokyo again. But um, for me at home, I don't make a lot because of the artifacts, the oil, mm-hmm. but we do have the oil solidifying powder. For me, it's, well, the top thing, well, besides the fact that you have to have very good vegetables, and I've never made fish tempura. I was never interested in that. Vegetable mm-hmm. tempura is just so amazing. But 
excellent flour and excellent oil. And so I buy um, a clarified canola oil, uh, which is called Yonezawashoten in Japan. And it's made from organic um, Japanese rapeseeds. And so it's really clear and it doesn't have, like if you taste it, a spoonful of it, you don't get this like aftertaste. Mm-hmm. So a really, really good oil and don't use so much. Um, um, I follow the home method of, of Kondo-san where you use three centimeters of oil. That's what, I, uh, what do you call that? Um, an inch and a quarter. And a I, very yes, shallow. I do. So, so um, that's a home style thing. So mm-hmm. if you're going to, if we do it in restaurants, we're going to do it a uh, deeper oil. But uh, when I do projects with my son, Andrew, and in restaurants, they're going to use a copper pan, copper, brass. I can't remember which one is Whichever it. conducts heat I have better. one. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, also the thing is, um, it's like you don't want to use cast iron is difficult because it retains the heat so much mm-hmm. and you can't adjust the heat. So um, it also needs to, it needs to not just retain, but it, it needs to adjust. Right. So it can't retain too much, which is why like Kondo-san, the, the tempura god in Japan, he recommends um, like ceramic pans. I used, I went, I threw away all of my nonstick pans, but I did buy again for tempura and for, because um, I found that they conducted well and adjusted well and cleaned up well. And so yeah. um, I don't use them for anything else, but, um, and they're, French ones, Tefla, I think, are quite deep-sided. So that is another key. Yeah. It's very crucial to have a deep-sided pan because you don't want the oil um, going over. Another thing, I, didn't, I never used egg in my batter anyway, but vegetarian tempura doesn't use egg. And it's much actually much easier to work with and it becomes mm-hmm. more crispy. In restaurants or with larger batters, you can use um, egg. Some people put sesame oil in the, ba- in the oil um, I don't do that. So uh, some of the recipes have that. And the other thing is I've found is that you really can't reuse the oil. And maybe that upsets people, the idea of waste. But the when you fry, and especially at home, well, in restaurants that are sober, sober restaurant friend, he changes the oil every service. And he doesn't wow. have a million customers. I mean, he has like 20 customers at lunch. But he still is going to change the oil of your service because what happens is when you fry vegetables or, or fish or fry anything in oil, it releases mm-hmm. minute moisture particles. And yes. so then those, so it looks clean. Oh, wait, you know, you strain it out. looks good. looks good. But then when you fry the next time, the, you're going to find that your tempura is going to get brown really quickly. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing I've noticed in photos of people who do my tempura recipes magazines or or blogging that there the um tempura is always too dark mm. it's um and so that's why i changed the wording i stopped saying golden brown because for me golden brown we used, would be like a golden color but if you use the word brown that confuses people so i stopped using golden brown that makes know, complete sense it should be it should be golden it should not uh, not not be brown at all. Yes, and I imagine that also you've got a cleaner flavor with a cleaner oil. And- yes, I also use the drip pan now. Putting rather than 
you know, um, it's really typical on home, home cooking or home frying that, you know, you're going to put a pad of something, whether it's newspaper or whatever, and then <laughs> put the paper towels on and bidding, 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 put your little things on. But, you know, that's steaming. So that's not a really good method. You should use right. a drip pan with a rack and then put the tempura or the fried thing on top of that. So oh, actually I actually use that for everything. Hmm. Well, I, Even, I was just looking yeah. too, and I saw your potato chip salad, which I thought that was so smart. Oh, that is, well, I, I don't want to say my potato chip salad because this, <laughs> the source for these recipes are authentic sources, not something that I just made up out of <laughs> thin air. Uh, none that I'm very close with and a couple of priests uh, who are um, in who who cook and who mm-hmm. promote this kind of this is not food that is eaten daily at a temple like this is vegetarian food that happens to be in the genre of mostly it's it's vegan um, temple food but it's called omotenashi food so it's something that would appear in cookbooks or on in restaurants or in fancy meals for the the monks or the or the nuns don't get the fancy meals. But in the actual time of devotional training, they're going to eat something very simple. And the idea of a bunch of monks or nuns living together and with their flowing robes is is something that Westerners think is happening, but it's less and less and less and less than you think. In fact, temples are passed, mostly temples are passed from, you know, grandfather or great grandfather to grandfather to father to son. And then um, the wife is the person who cooks for the family. Mm. It's a, then, I mean, there certainly are these enclaves, but it's not like the, the norm, for instance. I did not know that. that's, that's why it's so important to preserve this food, though. Um, and it's a lot of more modern take on traditional um, mm-hmm. temple food. So it's, it's I selected. So how my job is to select the most delicious and the most appealing and the most forward thinking dishes that will go into the next without still being rooted in tradition that will go into the next decades so that's my job is to curate and to make it delicious. Yeah, it's so interesting to to see what you've selected. And I also thought it was so interesting to see, for example, your vegetarian Japanese curry. Because when I think of Japanese curry, I think it's, te- you know, definitely one of, you know, the <clears throat> classic dishes, but it's also one of the ones that's probably one of the first fusion dishes when you think about it and the introduction of curry into Japan. And so... I just, you know, I think that's just a great idea. And I know for a lot of people, you think of the box, (laughs) the box curry that you find at the grocery store. So your, your version is so refreshing to read through. Well, I've never been a fan of Japanese curries. And so (laughs) I put it, I put a recipe in the first book too, and and not box because I don't like the box because they Mm -hmm. have all sorts of things in them. And I don't like the goopiness of it because it has um, potato starch in the in the roux, not just uh, flour. But um, I think the mabadofu actually, the mabadofu is one that I, I really worked on to make it what it is. And so, um, but fusion, actually tempura is a borrowed food that came from the Portuguese. So tempura oh. is not originally Japanese. Um, and there's quite a few dishes, ramen, of course, 
So the Japanese culture is very good at taking something and making it their own. And in fact, a lot of the food traditions come from China. I mean, most of food and cultural traditions come from China directly or, I mean, a long time ago, like、right. thousands of years ago, or through, through Korea from the monks traveling. It's actually fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. I see that the same parallels <laughs> in the Philippines, where my family's from. And, you know, a lot of the, the dishes、mm-hmm. there clearly have its roots in China.、Mm-hmm. And it's also interesting to see how each country will adopt an ingredient as their own or a technique as their own. So it's always、mm-hmm. fascinating. I'm also fascinated by your、yep. section on Japanese sugar, by the way. But go ahead, finish what you were going to say. <laughs> One of the things I just wanted before we like, lose our time, but、yeah. about, I was thinking about this last night. The most important feedback I have for people living outside of Japan is、mm-hmm. to really try. To absorb the heart of the food.、Um, yes. Because I feel,、um, and this is talked about among people who don't, who have experience in Japan, but then, then see what's going on with Japanese food outside of Japan and feel a little disappointment about、mm-hmm. how things are randomly put together in ways that don't make sense or menus are created in a non In a way that doesn't make sense. And so to really take to heart what's behind and how the, how the, how the dishes are put together. And, and it's not you know, rocket science, but it's really it's about absorbing and feeling and understanding, even if you've never been to Japan. But like, take a minute and, and absorb it, is my biggest advice.、Mm, to cook with intention. Yeah, for sure.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I noticed that you mentioned that among your, your three maxims for Japanese vegetarian cooking. So you said, take your time, cook with precision, enjoy the ingredients, and look into your heart through the food, which I love. And I think I'm going to take that with me into the kitchen the next time I cook. So before I let you go, I have some closing questions that are super quick.、Okay. What's something that you make when you're too tired to cook and you need an emergency go to dinner? Oh, I think that's really, <laughs> it really depends on what I have in the, in the larder. But,、uh, and, and I'm, it's not that I'm necessarily cooking Japanese food every day, you know, but、uh, we get really good eggs and we used to have an egg farm. And so、um, it's going to be more like eggs and vegetables, most likely.、Um, but my son, that said, my, I live with my son and his girlfriend, and、um, he, he likes meat. <laughs> And he needs、ah. his 300 grams of meat every day. So it's a, <laughs> there's everything. And also these days I start cooking at three because I get tired. You know, I just want it all prepped up. But、um, I think the most amazing food in Japan, for instance, is tofu related.、Mm. Um, and we're very lucky that we have a local soy sauce miso tofu company. And、um, they use only Japanese soybeans. And they're. Tofu is instant meal, whether it's tofu or the、um, usuage, the, the thin puffs, or the atsuage. You can make a meal with that, with those pieces, and in, some, in a salad and be done with it.、Mm. So that's probably a, and healthy. You know, yes,、so. and comforting too at the same time, I'm imagining.、Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and miso soup, yeah. Yes, miso soup. What's the one recipe that you treasure the most? Oh, I guess 
all forms of shirai, the um, smashed tofu dish. There's mm. so many things you can do with it. When people come here to, I have magazines come sometimes and um, it's a, and every time I do it, I do it a little bit differently. You can, you can do, you can put yuzu in it or peel, or you can put oshigaki, dried persimmons. You can, mostly I cook, I make things very simply. So I'm not going to put a lot of different things into one dish. Um, mm. But recently, I guess I did, I didn't have so many carrots or spinach on the f- field. I wanted to use my husband's stuff. And um, so I did use spinach and carrot, which is unusual. I wouldn't, I don't always do that sort of mixing thing. I cook very simply, but again, I don't cook Japanese food every day because, you know, it, there's a big world out there. Yeah, I know. Um, it's, it's more fun to explore. So are you a messy cook or a neat cook? Oh, neat cook for sure. When I was younger, yeah. messy. <laughs> oh, I'm very neat. <laughs> Plus, we just renovated this house. This is where we used to live, and my my oldest son is living in this in the farmhouse. And so, I like everything clean now. So it's a constant battle. Yes, but I keep it very clean. I clean up as I go for sure. Awesome. What's a good kitchen tip that you can share? I guess I I do think um, that for kitchen cleaning up as you go, give you space to to think thoughtfully about what you're doing and mm-hmm. i also do mise en place i prepped my ingredients for sure because that gives me a chance to get it all done and then cook with intention and cook without stress so cooking without stress is the most important thing which is why i start early you know and like i yeah. said i had, had three children and they were homeschooled and so um we were busy it was busy and the kitchen suffered for it so this is now I have you know no kids in Elksa adult adult son in the house but um when you don't have kids anymore it's a lot easier to keep things clean you know that's That's for sure so true and I like the idea of starting early I mean I know I've been trying to do that too just because the mad rush to get dinner on the table is so exhausting at the end of the meal and if you can give yourself time so much better well when I when my kids were smaller, I did that because um, I had lessons at night yeah, in the house, yeah. and so I started cooking at three just because that was when the babysitter came to to watch the kids, and then I could cook. So it actually um, it is actually a sustainable practice, um, and it's a it's I think it's a good thing to do. Mm. Um, well, if, let me close this out with. Five little things. Every week I try to share five little things with my readers, something that made me smile during the week. Is there anything that made you smile this week, Nancy? Oh, my little granddaughter, maybe. Aww. <laughs> See, I just um, have been able to spend time with her recently uh, since my son moved into the farmhouse. But she came out to, to um, lunch with us. My, my son was visiting from Brooklyn. Uh, my other son, and uh, she came out to, to lunch with us. And she said, Nancy, what's this? And she calls the noodles, the so- soba noodles, because you go. <laughs> oh, that's so cute. <laughs> yeah, so she makes me smile. Oh, that's precious. That's so nice to have that time together. Well, Nancy, it's yeah. it was so nice to talk to you today. Where can people Thank find you, you and your newest book? Oh, well, the book, I guess, is everywhere. Um, it's not coming out till it was supposed to be May, but now it's August. No, we call that April, April 27th, apparently. Uh-huh. And I'll be at um, Single Thread Farm on May 13th, though, no, 14th. And uh, Rintaro, 
Isakaya Rintaro, uh, San Francisco on May 14th. Bookshop Santa Cruz, May 16th. Then I'm going to Seattle, be at Book Larder and Seabird. In, and then in, at 10,000 Waves in Santa Fe, LA, now serving, and Orson Winston. And then end of May, I'll be at Superiority Burger and Estella, doing some filming with Brad Leone and going to Bon Appetit, heading to Paris oh. for the French book, and then back to Japan. Yeah. Wow. Milk I'm tired just Paris. thinking yeah. about that. <laughs> But I'm so yeah, grateful. That's why I wrestle a lot here. Yes, and you should. And I'm so grateful that you spent some time before all those travels with me. So I really do appreciate it. Thank you. Well, I'm bringing my son, Andrew, along to help me because oh, good. Yes, it is a little tiring. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you need so. your support. So that'll be great that he'll be there. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, thank you again, Nancy. And I am looking forward thank to you, your, your mirror book. So thanks. Okay. Thank you. I'm so glad you were able to join us for this episode. Thank you again to Nancy for joining us today. Her commitment to sharing Japanese artisanal ingredients really shines in her latest cookbook. And I'm so excited to try so many of the dishes she shares. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate it and share it with a friend and join us again next time. Until then, happy cooking. Happy cooking.